Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, reforming the force. We are not rejecting any of Madame Arbour's recommendations. They must change. And they Minister Anita Anand accepts all recommendations for culture change in the Canadian Armed Forces. But does the government have any timelines to deliver that change? We'll ask the minister for answers in just a few moments. And ethics breach by a cabinet minister. It is, of course, cause with this finding of guilt uh, for the international trade minister missing to resign. The Ethics Commissioner finds International Trade Minister Mary Ng violated the Conflict of Interest Act. Will she bow to opposition pressure and resign? Plus, the Liberals clinch a by-election win. Former Ontario Finance Minister Charles Sousa takes a Mississauga seat. What does it say about the government's popularity and does it reflect on Conservative leader Pierre Polyev? Bolster Nick Nanos will be here to break down the vote. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. A year ago today, Defence Minister Anita Anand delivered an apology to survivors of sexual misconduct in the military. She promised things will change in the Canadian Armed Forces. What has and hasn't changed in the years since her apology? Well, in May, retired Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbol tabled a third report into the military. Her damning report issued an urgent call for action. Arbol's report made 48 recommendations. At the time, Minister Anand initially accepted 17 of them, and today she accepted the remaining 31. Some of those recommendations include moving criminal code sexual offenses into the civilian courts and conducting a review into benefits, disadvantages, and costs of military colleges. But does the government have timelines in place to make Arbor's recommendations a reality? Let's find out. Joining me now is National Defense Minister Anita Anand. Welcome, Minister. Thank you so much for making the time today. I wanted to start with one of the key recommendations from Madame Arbol's report. It's Recommendation 5. It says that criminal code sexual offenses should be removed from the jurisdiction of the Canadian Armed Forces, and in all cases, they should be prosecuted in civilian courts. Now, both you and Madame Arbol note that this could include amendments to the National Defense Act, which could take years. Now, without a clear timeline, what do you say to victims who continue to say that the process is taking too long? Well, thanks, Mike. I have reached out to victims and survivors prior to today, and I want to say that my intention and expectation is that the Department of National Defense will implement not only recommendation number five, but all 48 recommendations. And indeed, my tabling of the response to the Arbor report today in the House of Commons is fulfilling one of those recommendations. And in fact, if we step back, it is important to note that on every single recommendation today, we have implemented and shown Canadians our path forward. And we will continue to come back and update Canadians on the work that we are doing to implement the Arbor recommendations quarterly from my department, as well as through the external monitor, Jocelyn Therrien, whom we appointed pursuant to one of Madame Arbour's recommendations as well. So we are going to continue to grow 
confidence in the Canadian Armed Forces by fulfilling the recommendations that Madame Arbour has outlined. And part of that confidence, I would assume, does come from the fact that 57 cases are under civilian jurisdiction. However, there were 40 that were declined. Now, in some in instances, the civilian side has not been able to take them on. Uh, and when you consider the backlog that still exists in civilian courts, mostly because of the pandemic, are you not concerned that many of these cases will still end up in the military system? The very purpose of our accepting and implementing recommendation number five is because of the continued push for us to move cases from the military to the civilian justice system. We know that there may be hurdles, such as cases which rest outside the jurisdiction of Canada, such as the continuing need for collaboration and cooperation with the provinces and territories. So while we move forward in the transfer of cases, we will continue to implement the broader recommendation, recommendation number five in order to protect the rights and the interests of victims and survivors. But them not being immediately transferred, or even that number that were not transferred, does that not create a chilling effect for victims? What it does do is exemplify for us the need to implement recommendation number five and the need to ensure uh, that the rights and protections that are afforded to victims in the civilian justice system will be available to them. And so while we are implementing the interim recommendation that I accepted within days of being appointed as Minister of National Defence, we will also implement recommendation number five again in the interests of victims and survivors. There are multiple systemic changes underway. These are complex, but my intention at every step is to get it done. Another part of the recommendation says that if the offense takes place outside of Canada, military police may act in the first instance to safeguard evidence and to start an investigation, but they should liaise with the civilian enforcement as soon as possible. How do you go about building an infrastructure that will work with other legal systems around the world? This is a very good question. Part of the complexity of implementing the Arbor Report recommendations is to ensure that we are liaising with international authorities and provincial and territorial authorities to ensure the smooth transfer of cases within and outside of Canada. And what we are going to be doing is striking a provincial territorial table so that our officials can cooperate and collaborate with provincial and territorial officials to smooth the transfer of cases from the military to the civilian justice system. But again, the expectation is we will continue to move forward and implement the recommendations of Madame or Louise Arbour. One of the other major parts of her recommendations was that culture change from the ground up. She wrote at length about the Royal Military Colleges saying there are legitimate reasons to question the wisdom of maintaining the existence of these military colleges as they currently exist. One of the recommendations which D&D is working on is a review board that could start its work in 2023. Now that board will look at the benefits, disadvantages and costs of the colleges. Do you have a timeline from where that review should be concluded and then acted on? 
That is recommendation number 29 in the report, the undertaking of a review of the military colleges, which I specified would occur in response to Madame Arbour's recommendation number 29. Uh, we are striking this uh, review board as soon as possible, and we are making sure that there is a review of the colleges as Madame Arbour recommended. Once again, Mike, I want to take a step back and understand that there are 48 eight recommendations in the Arbor report, and we are presenting a roadmap forward on every single one of those recommendations in order to ensure that cultural change in the Canadian Armed Forces does occur, and in order to ensure that we are building an institution where everyone who decides to put on a uniform in service of this country is protected and respected when they respect and serve our country every single day. So how do you push back and change that culture when you consider that Madame Aboul did say the military colleges appear to be institutions from, quote, a different era with an outdated and problematic leadership model? Does, leading them, does letting them, I should say, continue to operate right now actually undermine that culture change that you're looking for? Well, Mike, we've already begun some processes of reform in the military colleges. For example, in the exit surveys. For example, in ensuring that diversity and inclusion is part of the training at the colleges. So it is not lost on us that reform needs to occur, and we are starting already with that reform. I'm the chancellor of the military colleges. I have visited those colleges. I have spoken with the students there, and I know that everyone at these colleges is committed to broader transformational change in the area of culture to make sure that we are fostering an environment which is inclusive and which focuses on non-discrimination. But what do you say to critics who will say that these are institutions that are just too big to change in the amount of time that's actually needed to change? I understand the skepticism, uh, but I want to assure you and Canadians uh, that this time it is different. We are making sure that we address each and every one of Madame Arbour's recommendations, and we are also ensuring that there is the institutional foundation for cultural change in the military. This is not only morally right, it is also operationally necessary as we need to continue to grow the Canadian Armed Forces and reconstitute the forces for the benefit and the defense of our country. You say that this time is different. Why is it different this time? Because even Madame Aboul had acknowledged that her report may very well just sit on a shelf. So why, as the Minister of National Defense, are you saying this is different? Why should anybody believe the government this time? Again, I understand that skepticism, Mike. The reason it's different this time, Mike, is because at each and every step in this process, we have continued to come forward and have an open dialogue with Canadians and with the media, in fact, so that we are held accountable. So quarterly updates 
to the media from my officials a report that I tabled today where I outlined a roadmap, a detailed roadmap on how we are going to implement each and every one of those 48 recommendations. The appointment of an external monitor who's going to oversee the implementation of the recommendation and who's going to come back and report to Canadians in April as to the progress. This is the type of change that is occurring in addition to the substantive changes already underway, such as building up the Sexual Misconduct Response Centre, such as improving the process for general and flag officers' uh, promotions, such as ensuring that military colleges are including diversity and inclusion in their training. Those changes are already underway, Mike, and there's much more to come as we implement the recommendations of the Arbor Report. And we can't wait to check in with you again on a quarterly basis on these. Minister of National Defence, Anita Anand, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Mike. Take care. So is this good enough for groups fighting for change in the military? Let's find out. Joining me now is retired Major Donna Rigadell. She's a survivor, an advocate, and director of Survivor Perspective Consulting Group. Thank you so much for being here. I wanted to first off ask you, what did you make of what Minister Anand had to say there? Um, so Minister Anand is an educated, decisive woman, and I'm glad to have her in the Minister of National Defence. But in all honesty, it it's getting to the point where um, we'll believe it and we see it. Like, it's awesome that they have a plan. We're, we're delighted that they've accepted all the recommendations, even though at its very core, many of Madame Arbor's recommendations were, hey, let's do what the Deschamps report also recommended. Mm -hmm. um, but... We, we don't see these changes. We don't see the timelines. We don't see the implementation plan. And that we need to see. I wanted to ask you specifically on that. I mean, you had Justice Arbor saying that she was aware that this could be another report that sits on a shelf. From what you are seeing and hearing from the government, do you think that there is a path to action that's being presented today? I want to be clear that I want to have hope. But at the same time, this is the fourth time in my career and in my lifetime that I've heard these exact same, this will be different. We're finally going to grip this. We're finally going to change things. So again, we'll believe it when we see it. So show us because all of our questions about implementation, about what this is going to look like, about timelines were, well, we're not there yet. Why are we not there yet? Why is there such a delay? It's not like this is a new problem. Um, we've had so many people come and go and so many different sort of solutions offered, but nothing sort of has, has taken and run with it. One of those major recommendations I think all survivors wanted was number five, uh, calls for the criminal code uh, sexual offenses to be moved to civilian courts. I wanted to ask you, how critical is that recommendation in your mind? I will admit that I have mixed feelings about that particular recommendation. I've had, in my own um, personal history, I've had two cases, one that was going civilian side and one that went military side. The one that military side probably would have just been dismissed civilian mm -hmm. side because it would have been considered a lower harm incident, whereas military side, it was actually dealt with quickly and efficiently. And then I've had a case make it all the way through to the court process and then ultimately get dismissed by the Crown. So I've definitely felt the sting of both of them. I think that um, survivors need to be careful. This isn't a magic bullet. Um, it's still, even before deadline, even before COVID delays, it's mm -hmm. 18 months to three years, right? This is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a long time. Right. Um, and I think that it's going to be um, disappointing for some and for others, that, of course, they're going to have some success. On measuring the success of doing all this, this implementation, Mr. Anand said there are going to be quarterly reports that right. will sort of show where they are on the implementation of this. 
these recommendations. What are you going to be looking for in that first quarterly report? Um, I'll be looking for um, the same thing that I've kind of been looking for all the way along is kind of how I hear people at the NCM level, how they're responding, how they are being impacted by the changes. Because I find that a lot of stuff, you know, we always talk about the bottom up and grassroots. We're not getting down to the to the boots on the ground. Like we're mm-hmm. not getting down to them. They are looking for these skills. They want to be doing better by and large. They want to get back to you know, being an effective military and want to know how to do things better. We're not equipping them properly for that. Like we're not giving them the tools that they need to support each other and, and, you know, navigate this, but they're sure looking for it. So it's time to start, you know, passing that along. And it's not about recycling old solutions. It needs to be, you know, new innovation. We can't keep trying to use the same old military solution on a problem that's ultimately a human problem. Yeah. Retired major, Donna Rigdell, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank Thank you for your service to this country as well. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Still to come, a breach of the Conflict of Interest Act. Cabinet Minister Mary Ng is apologizing for breaking ethics rules, but opposition parties want her to step down. We'll get more on this story from Annie Bergeron Oliver when Power Play returns after this. We've got ministers found guilty of breaking acts of parliament, breaking laws passed by this place. Um, and, uh, and so we'll be looking for, um, looking for Ms. Ng to appear today and, uh, and to offer her resignation. Conservatives ethics critic Michael Barrett calling for the resignation of International Trade Minister Mary Ng. Now, the ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, says that she violated the Conflict of Interest Act. For more on this, let's bring in CTV's Annie Bergeron Oliver. Annie, what did the commissioner find here? Hi. So the commissioner found that she did break the Conflict of Interest Act because as a public office holder, you're not supposed to be helping your friends. And in mm-hmm. this case, while she had no benefit from it, Miss Elvero, who owns the company Pop and Circumstance, did. She made money on two different occasions. One was a contract for media relations. That was about $16,000. That was in 2020. Then in 2019, Ng's office also hired Alvero's company to do media relations training. And that one was for just under $6,000. So essentially what the ethics commissioner said was, In this instance, given the fact that they did have a friendship, the two had known each other for about 20 years, Mm -hmm. that Mary Ng, in this case, should have recused herself from any discussions relating to a contract going to this company, uh, or she should have just made sure that the company in general was not considered for this contract. And then there was also the fact that it didn't go out to tender, but more directly to the company. How is Mary Ng responding to that? So in the House today, as well as in a statement, she came out and said that she took she takes full responsibility for her actions. She said, I should have recused myself and apologized to all for not having done so. She said that in the moment, uh, she fell short of her, quote, own high personal standards for transparency. And she says there was no personal benefit for her. But again, she apologized and said, you know, I should have recused myself and, and I should have handled the situation differently. How serious is this not only for Ng, but for this government? So I've been talking to a lot of experts who say, look, there's no penalty that comes with this. And overall, it's really not going to hurt the Liberals brand that much. It's not going to affect Mary Ng either. You know, there is no penalty. So she doesn't face, you know, a force to be uh, any type of penalty. Um, 
However, what they do say is that this really is raw meat for the conservatives because this plays into the narrative that a lot of people have about the liberals, that they're only out to help their friends mm -hmm. and that they treat their friends differently than other people. So both Nanos, who I was talking to, and a political professor was saying that this is really going to help the conservatives because it plays into their message. And some are saying this could end up being in an attack ad during the next election because we have to remember uh, there are some people who will say this is a pattern. Both Trudeau, Morneau, and now Ng all have been found to have violated the act. And some will say this is a pattern of the liberals being elite and helping their friends. I mean, helping the conservatives to the point that they actually have a critic that's focused just on ethics, Michael Barrett. Um, so going forward, are you expecting this to continue to sort of play out in the House of Commons? I think that the Conservatives will have it playing out, but we also have to remember that the House is set to rise sometime soon, so mm -hmm. I think that will sort of blunt the edge of the impact here, because there's not going to be a lot of question periods for them to be continually bringing this up. It's interesting, though, one of our colleagues talked to Don Davies, who's an NDP member, who also said that this is corruption and that this should not stand. So it's not just the Conservatives who are saying that there's something wrong here. Uh, the NDP, some of their own members as well, are also saying that this isn't okay. Okay, that it shouldn't have been allowed to happen and that something needs to change to ensure that there's not another Liberal cabinet minister who is found to have been breaking the Conflict of Interest Act. Yeah, interesting, especially considering they have that supply and conference mm -hmm. agreement. CTV's Annie Bergeron Oliver, thank you so much for Thanks, being Mike. here. I appreciate it. Now here's some other news you need to know. It's being called the most impressive scientific feat of the 21st century. Researchers in California were able to produce more energy in a fusion reactor than was used to produce it. Fusion occurs when two light atoms are heated and fused into a heavier atom, in this case using lasers. The process releases large amounts of energy. The ability to do this could be a game changer in the race to produce clean energy and to fight climate change. Have a listen to the reaction, pun intended, from Canada's industry minister earlier today. It's a bit like the first spark when someone was comparing that when you had the first oil and someone got the first spark. Now you need to build the engine, then you need to build the car. So from what we have seen today, we need to move into application uh, and saying how could that energy become abundant and, and relatively inexpensive for the world to use. But today is a bit like when you talk about quantum supremacy. It's one of these moments in humanity where you say, wow, we have achieved that. So big moment, and I think Canada can play a big role in that. And the Parliamentary Committee examining safety in sport heard from the author of the Hockey Canada report released back in November. Former Supreme Court Justice Thomas Cromwell says he was given a specific mandate to review the organization's governance. Cromwell was asked if he'd learned why Hockey Canada had been reluctant to sign on to the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner and their abuse-free sport mandate. He says to his knowledge, it had to do with money. It seems to me there was concern about the uh, one aspect of the concern was the disclosure of financial statements in the sense that it might invite um, it might invite uh, claims if people recognize the size of the reserve. Cromwell says he discovered an absence of consistency in recording money coming in and going out. Cromwell recommended Hockey Canada develop clear policies on the purpose and use of funds. He says he did not conduct any forensic audit and therefore cannot say whether or not public funds were used to pay sexual assault claims. And signs of slowing inflation in the United States, a slightly rosier picture ahead for the holidays. 
The U.S. consumer prices rose by 7.1% in November compared to a year ago. That's down from 7.7% in October, much lower than the peak of 9.1% back in June. Well, coming up, breaking down the by-election. The Liberals chalked up a win in a riding they've held for years. Does this mean the Conservatives are licking their wounds or have they already moved on? Bolster Nick Nanos will dig into the numbers next on Power Play. We have another liberal minister found guilty of violating the Ethics Act, this time for giving a $23,000 contract to one of her best friends at a company called Pomp and Circumstances. And uh, it reminds us of the Prime Minister giving a half billion dollars to an organization called the We Charity that gave his family a half million dollars. So, Mr. Speaker, will this minister be held accountable and will she be required to pay back the $23,000 in improper contracting that she gave out? Every now and then there's an opportunity for Canadians to weigh in directly on what's going on in federal politics. And yesterday, the residents of Mississauga Lakeshore had a choice. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau ignoring a question about his minister breaking the Conflict of Interest Act and then instead answering a question he wished had been asked about by-election results yesterday in the GTA. Last night, former Ontario Finance Minister Charles Souza won a by-election in Mississauga Lakeshore with 51.2% of the vote. Now, Conservative Ron Chisner garnered just 37.3%. Not bad, but historically it has been a Liberal seat. Many saw it as a test for the Tories because it was the first vote with Pierre Polyev as leader. So does this reflect badly on the Conservative leader? Or can we really read anything into this result when you consider that just 26.5% of voters turned out? Here to break it all down is CTV News pollster and chairman of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. Nick, thank you for joining us. I wanted to ask you, since this is the first trip to the polls federally with this new Conservative leader, does this reflect badly at all on Pierre Polyev? Well, I think the Conservatives have to be disappointed because, you know what, in, in 2022, think of it this way, in Mississauga, Lakeshore, the progressive Conservatives under Premier Ford, won, the, won, that, won that election by uh, 45%. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the Liberals won it in the general election, and now the Liberals have picked it up. The interesting thing, Mike, is some of the movement, the Liberals were up six points, NDP down five, which means the margin of victory that the Liberals had probably had a lot to do with some strategic voting. And I think that's what Pierre Poiliev has to worry about. He needs better NDP numbers for the Conservatives to perform well when it comes to seats. How does he flip that script, though, for the next election as we see it? Well, I think for the short term, he's probably going to focus on fundraising Mm -hmm. and uh, throwing red meat to the conservative core in order to build up a a war chest. But our numbers suggest that when Pierre Poiliev focuses on meat and potatoes issues like the cost of housing, like the rising cost of groceries, his numbers go up. When he's focused on other issues, say, for example, the trucker's convoy, his numbers go down. So for him, it's got to be a meat and potatoes agenda in order to turn things around and to get the upper hand. And really move it back towards that place, like you were saying, sort of that the Ontario Tory type of voter that, you know, he may be catering to. Absolutely. And, you know, for under Premier Ford, the progressive conservatives have been very pragmatic. They've been very successful. I would say in Ontario... That's the franchise that you probably want to copy because right now it's got the upper hand and is successful. And how important is that 
especially for federal parties looking for that vote-rich area to get those types of ridings? I think it's actually critical. And, you know, what's the interesting dynamic that's happening right now, Mike, is that, you know, there are ridings like the Mississauga and the Bramptons that within a number of months voted in one election for a provincial conservative party mm -hmm. and another election a federal liberal party. That shows that those ridings are up for grabs. Those ridings in the GTA in that horseshoe are probably going to determine the outcome of the election. Everyone's going to be reading entrails on what this means. But the other thing we have to say is a strong candidate could tip the balance in right. favor of a party. And I think in this particular case, the Liberals probably had the strongest candidate. And we know there's also that sort of phenomenon that Ontario feels comfortable with a Conservative Premier, but a Liberal Prime Minister at times. I wanted to ask you just quickly about the turnout, voter turnout. Should any of the parties really be reading too deeply into it? Well, the thing is, is that a turnout at about 26% is quite low. Uh, but usually low voter turnouts help Conservative-minded voters and mm -hmm. parties. In this case, it didn't happen. So... Uh, I think it speaks to the level of disaffection. You know, people are grumpy. They're not happy with any of the leaders. They're not happy with any of the parties. So why don't they just focus on the holiday season yeah, instead? Yeah, sit at home or go Christmas shopping. Yeah. Nick Nanos, appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Coming up, Canada's hospitals in crisis. As hospitals desperately come up with solutions to ease the burden in their ERs, what solutions does the health sector want to see from governments Healthcare Can, the national voice for hospitals across Canada, joins our press gallery next on PowerPlay. The Red Cross had to be called into the Ottawa Children's Hospital. Wow. There's a trailer set up at a children's hospital in Calgary because the parents and children are, are in such, such high demand for services that they have to wait out in the cold, so they have a trailer. Children are dying from respiratory illness, and this is just the beginning of the season. And in Montreal, workers are saying this is the worst they've ever seen. And we have a prime minister who's not showing up to provide solutions. But I've been sitting down with doctors and nurses uh, and other frontline workers who've said very clearly, do not just send more blank checks to the provinces uh, for health care. Make sure that the provinces are delivering outcomes, delivering results. For well, as hospital emergency departments across Canada are being overwhelmed by an influx in respiratory viruses, the Hamilton, Ontario Children's Hospital is finding new ways to take the pressure off their ER. The McMaster Children's Hospital has opened a new walk-in flu, cold, and COVID-19 clinic for kids. The hospital says the clinic is for symptomatic children who are unable to see their family doctor and who don't need emergency care. It's just one solution being used by one pediatric hospital. Now, other hospitals are canceling surgeries or sending patients kilometers away to other hospitals. So does the system need creative solutions or just more staff? Let's bring in the press gallery panel to weigh in. We've got Bob Fife, he's the Globe and Mail's Parliamentary Bureau Chief. Fatima Syed, she's a reporter for the Narwhal. And our special guest today is Dr. Michael Gardam. He's the chair of the board of the board of directors at Healthcare Can. It's the national voice for hospitals and healthcare organizations right across Canada. He's also the CEO of Health PEI. Dr. Gardam, we're going to start with you. Can you give us a sense of the crisis facing hospitals right now? Is it becoming tougher to try and find solutions after years of the pandemic? 
Yes, absolutely. It's, it is a really hard time right now. And I think anybody that you speak to across the country will say that we're short staffed. Morale is very, very low. Our system has been sort of creaking along for at least a decade or so. And the pandemic has just pushed us into this really, really difficult situation. I've never, frankly, seen anything like this. It's a difficult situation with some creative um, solutions, doctor. I mean, is this something that people should be applauding or really pushing the panic button on? Uh, it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, we, we do need to keep putting Band-Aids and duct tape on our Canadian healthcare system, but there's a stark reality here, which is the system that we created 65 years ago just isn't doing very well anymore. And I think we need to reach a point where we start having very serious conversations around what does Canadian healthcare 2.0 look like. In the meantime, though, we still have to provide care while we dig into, you know, what does the future hold? And Fatima, we continue to have those conversations, but there's this impasse between the premiers and the federal government over increasing the federal health transfers. I mean, provinces want more money, but the federal government doesn't want to hand out blank checks. So do you think governments are playing a game of chicken where no one wants to be the first one to sort of blink here? Well, they're absolutely playing a game of chicken. But, you know, at the top, you, you talked about what does the system need? I think the system needs a a little bit of transparency and, and a lot of accountability. You know, the, there's a lot of money poured into the healthcare system. Um, and, and what we see now is the federal government and the province battling in getting more of it, but we don't even know where the money that we have right now is going. You know, the Ontario government hasn't spent its full healthcare budget, um, and, and we don't know where it's spending that. The federal government gives tens of billions of dollars to support healthcare in Canada, but the provinces don't really release, you know, basic statistics so Canadians know how their healthcare systems are working or not working. Like, where are the gaps? Where are the failures? What do we need to invest the money in? Um, I, I agree that Canada's healthcare system is in desperate need of, of reform, um, but right now the status quo isn't working and it really needs some hard evidence so we can actually chart a path forward that will be effective and long-lasting. Bob, how much of a crisis does it need to get to for governments to finally realize urgent action is needed? Well, first of all, we are in a very deep crisis. We don't have to look at the newspapers or the TVs every night to mm -hmm. see what's happening in our healthcare system. There are solutions out there. The medical community, whether it's the doctors or nurses, have provided uh, some pretty good solutions to try to address this issue. And I'm very happy. I, I can't believe, and you've, you watch Question Period and you watch mm -hmm. provincial legislatures, it's only now that we're starting to have these questions raised. This should have been raised months ago, years ago. What are you doing to fix our health care system? And, you know, we're starting to see it now, but governments have to get together and, and resolve this situation because the solutions are there. They've given us the solutions, but they're still fighting about money and who's going to take the credit for it. And Fatima is right that a lot of the problems is that the provinces will take the federal money and then give it to tax breaks right. or give it to other issues. It's got to go to the health care system because at some point here, I mean, the, it's in crisis, it's falling apart. And it's very frustrating uh, as somebody who I don't even have a doctor right now because my right. doctor passed away. But, the, you know, this system is in deep trouble, and our politicians are sitting on the sidelines 
waiting to negotiate who's going to get the upper hand mm -hmm. here when everybody out there, in our, including all these poor uh, mothers who have their kids in, in, because they have respiratory problems in hospitals, are, are facing a very serious issue. And it's time for the politicians to get together before Christmas and try to get this yeah. thing resolved. Dr. Gardam, I mean, rightfully so, a lot of the focus has been on hospitals in the cities and the crisis that they're facing. But there's a lot of issues and plenty of issues for rural areas that don't even have access to resources um, that urban hospitals do. I mean, how acute is the issue in the, um, in the rural areas right now? Oh, well, I mean, having spent most of my, most of my career on University Row in, in, in Toronto and then moving to Prince Edward Island, I mean, the difference to me is absolutely shocking. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of challenges here in Prince Edward Island that I just didn't see when I was in Toronto. I mean, we obviously in our more rural areas, we have challenges staffing our emergency departments. We have problems getting uh, doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers and primary care. It really is across the board. So when I deal, when I dealt with staffing shortages in Toronto, they're so much worse the more rural you get. And so it is, there is a huge disparity depending where you live in the country. So Dr. Gardam, are you concerned more now about, not now that you've seen it, but should we be more concerned about what's happening in the rural areas compared to what's in the urban areas? Well, absolutely. I think one thing that Canada has been missing forever has been a health human resources strategy for the whole country where we actually plot out what are our population demographics going to look like? What are the various social determinants of health in rural areas versus urban? How many health care providers are we going to need? I mean, in my own career, I've worked in three different provinces and I can tell you stories of each one where it felt like the number of doctors or the number of nurses was kind of a political whim at the time, rather than really based on any very serious uh, long-term planning. So that is something we desperately need, and we need to figure out what can we offer in rural areas, and you know what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, what things do we have to send you to a larger or larger urban center for, but we have to have the conversations and work through it. I find that we're just sanding around the edges of a very rough system rather than getting into the really meaty questions. But you, can I just interject sure. on this? Because he, he's absolutely right. Uh, I come from northern Ontario. For a long period of time, we didn't. It was very difficult to get doctors. But, you know, we know that um, the, the uh, CMA has said, look, if you we've got to change the licensing so that if you want to work in British Columbia, you can work in British Columbia. If you want to work in Ontario, you can work in Ontario. You've, we've got to do better with the licensing of mm -hmm. foreign doctors so they can come into this country. But we also have to pay doctors more. If, they, if we pay doctors more to go and work in Northern Ontario or in Prince Edward Island or whatever, then let's pay them more right. to get them there. But there are solutions on the table. It's just that governments don't want to embrace them. Bob Fife, you're going to stick right there. Fatima, Fatima, I've, I've got to leave this subject, unfortunately. Uh, Dr. Michael Garden, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much. Bob and Fatima, you'll be sticking around for our next round on the Press Gallery panel, where we continue our year-end Power Players of the Year series. One of the major stories of 2022 was, of course, the Freedom Convoy protests and the ensuing Emergencies Act inquiries. So who did we name as the Power Player of the Year for that story? Keep watching Power Play to find out.
when difficult events occur that impact the life, lives of Canadians, the public has a right to know what has happened. But inquiries are also forward-looking. They seek not only to understand what has occurred in the past, but also to learn from those experiences and to make recommendations for the future. So as we wrap up this year, each day of this week will feature a new Power Player of the Year. You just saw a clip of Commissioner Paul Rouleau. He's our second Power Player of 2022 this week. He had the daunting job of overseeing the Public Order Emergency Commission. The inquiry tasked with investigating the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act in February. Now, if you were living under a rock, you may have missed the weeks-long Freedom Convoy, those protests that laid siege to downtown Ottawa earlier this year. Protesters also blockaded a key international crossing, like the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor and border crossings in Coots, Alberta. To the end of the protest, the Trudeau government invoked the Emergencies Act, a decision that has left Canadians divided. So in light of the historic inquiry into the Emergencies Act, we're bringing into the press gallery panel today to weigh in on today's power player. Joining me now, of course, is Bob Fife. He's the uh, Ottawa Bureau Chief of the Globe and Mail. We have the Narwhals, Fatima Syed, and CTV National News Senior Political Correspondent and Freedom Convoy Correspondent <laughs> Extraordinaire, Not Glenn really McGregor. Not title, but close Yeah, enough. I know. I, I, I thought you were adding that to your, your business, oh, cards. business cards. Yeah, you should. So what's at stake for Commissioner Rouleau in all this as he oversees the Emergencies Act inquiry? Well, he had such a huge job and a very compressed timeline. I mean, uh, something like uh, 70 witnesses ending with the Prime Minister, uh, thousands and thousands of documents that he had to go through, videos, recordings, and he had to do it very quickly. Remember the the start of the hearing was delayed because of his illness. Right. The hearings went on, and I covered uh, probably about half of them, the actual sittings of the hearings. They went on for hours. They started at 9.30, sometimes go till 9 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. They were very, very long days, especially for a guy, an older guy who's recovering uh, from uh, some kind of health problem. Uh, it was uh, very taxing and uh, often very dense hearings, too, because he had to take in so many different perspectives uh, from the police, from the protest organizers, from the federal government, from the cabinet ministers, from uh, different levels of the provincial governments as well. Uh, we had representation at the commission from numerous different parties who were granted standing, and they all had an opportunity to cross-examine every Witness. So it dragged on and on. It was a marathon. And he now has to probably at this moment is working on distilling all that mm -hmm. into a report that he's going to table in February. Fatima, we've got to pull back the curtain on the government's response to the convoy. How important was this inquiry for democracy and transparency in this country? Oh, hugely important. In recent years, I think it was the biggest exercise of transparency that our democratic system has taken. And, and that's what makes... Um, you know, the justice's position so uh, important and worthy of being recognized. This was, you know, the biggest lifting of the curtain that I've ever seen in, in, in my, you know, short-ish career. And um, it shouldn't have to have been this way, but I'm glad because what was revealed is the way decisions are made across different levels of government. That's something Canadians don't necessarily get an insight to every day. And it's something that is very pertinent to understanding if our democracy is functioning well. Um, and of course, we're waiting for the report and his conclusions. And, and, you know, I know he's getting advice right now on all the legalities of the various different acts and their implications. But it's 
unprecedented and it was extremely cool if i can say that um to <laughs> to see just text messages and and how governments think and approach things and and so forth yeah bob i'll admit there was a lot of deliberation when we were talking about the freedom convoy naming naming a winner to a power player of the year but what do you think of it being commissioner rouleau in our opinion but also separate from that i mean when you consider all of the protests that we had seen associated with it was there anyone else who was a win winner on the outcome of all of this? Well, I think Brian Maroon deserves all the credit for this because it was uh, when the War Measures Act became the Emergencies Act, he made it a requirement that if it was ever invoked, mm -hmm. that we would be able to have a judicial inquiry and the judicial inquiry would be able to get at all of the information. And, you know, it wasn't to me uh, the testimony as much as it was the fact that we were able to see all these text messages, all of the documents. It was the documents themselves, that, to me, was the, was the really pulled back the curtain on what right. was actually going on. And so I, if we're going to give anybody credit, I, I think it's, uh, it's uh, uh, Mulroney for uh, doing that in terms of the uh, Emergencies Act. Parent Beatty, too. And Parent Beatty, who was Look, I think that... Uh, at the end of the day, Trudeau came out very strong and making, uh, I think, the end of the, he wrapped up the uh, inquiry at the end with a, a very strong political argument for invoking it. Um, I don't think he made the case for the legal argument, and we're still waiting for that because they won't release the legal um, uh, justification right. for invoking the act. But politically, I think Trudeau was the, probably the strongest person at the, at the end of uh, for making that case. Glenn, how high are your expectations for the release of the report? I think the report is going to have things in there that are going to dis dissatisfy all the parties. I don't think anybody's going to come out of this and say, aha, we've been vindicated, either the convoy organizers or the government in its response. I'm not even sure if he's actually going to weigh in on what people think he is. That is the central question of whether it was right to do it or not. I think he's heard so many arguments persuasive as Bob says, especially from the Prime Minister in his, uh, the closing day of testimony, um, that he's going to have to moosh it all together and, and try and create some kind of order. I think the most likely result is not a binary decision on it was right or wrong. It was how should we proceed in future? How yeah. does the law need to be amended? Mm -hmm. Do we need new guardrails to more clearly define? And because of the legal arguments Bob was talking about, they were fuzzy about whether or not the government actually had the legal right to do it. I think we're going to get clarity from the report when it comes out, but maybe not a yes/no decision. Fatima, I'm going to give you the last 20 seconds to weigh in here. Um, I was going to say what I was going to say in the, at the end of the last segment, which is, you know, the bottom line is you can't you can't play politics with people's lives, right? And and this was an exercise in proving whether the invocation of the emergency powers was a political act or whether it was justified by the legal mechanisms and methodology that has been laid out in legislation for years and years and years. We have these accountability mechanisms in place for a reason, as, as Bob laid out. And I think what we're going to see ahead with the report is going to set a precedent on, on whether you know, the government is working as it should and worked as it should and will continue and to Fatima, work as it Fatima, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. I apologize, I apologize. Fatima Side, Bob Fife, Glenn McGregor. Thank you all very much. That's your Power Play Day in Politics. We'll be back here tomorrow, and we will see you then.